I was almost going to do something else this morning, um, simply because I did not. Uh, I had wanted to do a lot more looking at materials on Zwingli, and uh, I've just I've got a debate coming up uh, next. Uh, let's see, a week from. Oh no, this is coming Friday uh, in Salt Lake. So my study time has been on other issues. Uh, I've been reading, a, listening to a biography of Joseph Smith. It's been sort of fun, to be honest with you, uh, reviewing stuff from, that I was studying 30, 35 years ago um, and was so heavily involved with for at least 10 years. A lot of it's coming back, which is nice. <laughs> when you're my age and stuff comes back, that's a good thing. Uh, it's, uh, it's like, yeah, that's, uh, it's exciting. Brain's still working. Um, so uh, I almost, but then I thought last night, well, you know, I've got a little time this morning, maybe tomorrow morning. And so I, um, I've actually listened to uh, three lectures uh, on Zwingli since last night. I stayed up later than I should have, and I've had my headphones on all morning, including driving down here. Uh, so that will allow me to at least uh, press on a little bit. Uh, even though I certainly couldn't take notes and stuff like that, I just have to be going off of the top of my head from what I uh, what I've been listening to. We had started looking at Zwingli last week, and um, one uh, one series on church history you might find really useful uh, that I've listened to uh, is from what uh, Pastor Fry would call the Old Covenant Seminary. Um, over against the New Covenant Seminary, which has nothing to do with Old and New Covenants. Uh, obviously, Pastor Fry went to Covenant Seminary, and, and um, uh, so he, uh, uh, Dr. David Calhoun um, taught church history there for a long time, and his uh, church history lectures are available. They're nice and short. They're probably a little bit shorter than, than uh, ours are, um, I think you get through it a little bit faster, but it'd be, you know, another perspective, and uh, he's a very good uh, teacher. And one of the things that he frequently does is he will start his classes with a, a prayer from the person that they're discussing that particular week. And so um, I grabbed, I, I heard this prayer, I was able to track it down. Uh, he had begun the week on Zwingli with uh, this prayer that Zwingli would frequently pray before uh, preaching. And uh, here is, uh, here's what that prayer was. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, whose word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and per- perfectly understand thy word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood, that in nothing we may be displeasing unto thy majesty through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And so that was uh, Zwingli's prayer prior to uh, preaching the Word of God, and I think that's a a good prayer uh, to uh, to have for uh, many uh, different uh, contexts and situations. So we had begun looking at Zwingli. Uh, we had uh, mentioned uh, a couple things uh, in regards to him. Uh, we had mentioned his humanist uh, training and the fact that he learned uh, Greek and Hebrew. 
Uh, as I mentioned, uh, when he got hold of Erasmus's Greek New Testament, he memorized Paul's epistles in Greek. Uh, that's, that's enough to make any uh, seminary student pretty impressed with uh, Zwingli's uh, brain power right from there. Um, he would always be uh, taken with Erasmus. And this is, uh, this is one of the things, uh, if you remember when I came back from, from Germany, uh, we spent uh, a little bit more time than normal uh, on the uh, Marburg qual- colloquy in 1529. And uh, we discussed uh, the relationship between uh, Luther and Zwingli and how important that was uh, at that particular meeting. And you'll recall the dynamics that we discussed at that particular point in time, remember Philip of Hesse and, and uh, Bootser and Ocolampadius and Melanchthon, they were all there. And, and that in, in retrospect, at least from our perspective, it would, it would seem that Zwingli comes off looking significantly better than Luther in that particular encounter in 1529. Well, there were things that, there were things that led up to that. Uh, it was a development over time. There had already been a division between the the Swiss, uh, the Zurichers specifically, and the the Wittenbergers, um, there would always be a discussion of who was first. Uh, German historians uh, put put Luther uh, and Zwingli depended upon him, and Swiss historians would say that they were parallel developments. You know, there's there, you know there's arguments on both sides. It, it seems to me that that. Uh, Zwingli is a little bit behind Luther. He he do, he is influenced by Luther, uh, but he also does have different uh, elements of emphasis. And certainly, one of those elements of emphasis that's different is is Zwingli's biblicism, in the sense that if it is not commanded in the New Testament, that uh, we should not practice it. And so, therefore, you look at a uh, a, a worship service in Wittenberg. Uh, and compare that with um, a worship service in Zurich in, let's say, 1530, and you're going to see uh, much more similarity in Wittenberg between that and the medieval Catholicism that it's come out of than you're going to see in Zurich. In Zurich, for example, um, over time, it wasn't done by mobs running into churches and doing this over a weekend. Um, it was done by the, the order of the council. Remember, in, in Zurich, it was, very, it was a democratic reformation. You'd have a disputation, uh, the council would vote, and voila, you, you end up doing what the council says. So over time, using workers, uh, you had images removed, you had artwork removed, you had the organs removed uh, from the churches, uh, and then you had the walls painted and the frescoes and the artwork uh, that had been common in the medieval period covered over with, with, with paint, with white paint, which, interestingly enough, is fading in our day. And the frescoes are coming back out. And there's nobody to re-whitewash it, that's for certain, uh, in, in these days. Um, and so uh, there was this, this kind of difference between... Uh, between Luther and and Zwingli, on uh, on those levels, and so we had we had talked about those things. We did talk about the Great Plague of fifteen nineteen, 
that hit Zurich, and that uh, uh, Zwingli had uh, Zwingli was born on January first, fourteen eighty four, I think, just about seven weeks after uh, Luther, and uh, he began his ministry in Zurich on January first, on his birthday, interestingly enough, in fifteen nineteen. That year, the plague hit and wiped out a quarter of the population of Zurich. Uh, Zwingli sort of cemented himself in the minds of the people there. He was not one of those who would who, who fled, and in fact contracted the illness and almost died. Uh, they pretty much thought he was a goner, but he uh, he managed somehow uh, to recover and to uh, to survive. That was important because uh, Zwingli had begun his ministry in Zurich under somewhat of a cloud. Uh, I had mentioned to you that, that his father had sacrificed to get him a good education, knew Greek and Hebrew, proficient on 12 different musical instruments. Uh, and even the last year of his life wrote music and put some uh, Greek tragedy plays to music the last year of his life. But he would never do that with church music. He never wrote any church music because he did not believe that that was... Um, to be done in the church because it didn't have a New Testament command to do it. But anyway, um, talented uh, man, and as to exactly when he was converted, um, those those are challenging issues to know exactly when that was. Again, just as with Luther, there's arguments as to, you know, a three or four year date range, uh, maybe a little bit lesser with with, uh, Zwingli, but there's still people who will argue one way or the other. But uh, Zwingli had come to uh, Zurich under a a bit of a cloud um, in regards to an accusation of uh, sexual scandal in his past. Now, remember, Erasmus was the illegitimate son of a a priest. He had to get a specific, uh, basically, indulgence, not quite the same thing, but uh, to even be a priest himself because of his... uh, because of his ancestry, um, the Pope was well known at this time to have um, all sorts of kids by all sorts of different women. Uh, it was um, a- an unfortunate reality of, of the time period, and especially in light of the um, clerical discipline of celibacy, uh, that this type of thing happened. What's interesting is... Uh, that up until not that long ago, uh, probably less than 100 years, um, the accusation against Zwingli was considered by most Protestant historians to have been just another one of the papal exaggerations, because it was very common uh, in the years after the Reformation for uh, Roman Catholic apologists to... Uh, come up with all sorts of accusations against uh, the reformers. Uh, you know, the only reason they did all this was because they wanted to be able to break all the rules of the church and so on and so forth. And um, so there were there were two uh, Swiss historians uh, in the library in Zurich uh, shuffling through old documents, and out from this this book falls a letter. And uh, the one knowing Zwingli really well immediately recognized the handwriting. It was an original letter from Ulrich Zwingli uh, to the church at Zurich prior to his coming there. Um, 
going all through and confessing his, uh, his youthful um, encounter and uh, even fathering a child uh, before he came to Zurich. And so it, it hadn't been a, uh, a papal thing. It was uh, real, and Zwingli had owned it before he came there, and probably because he did was why he was still asked to come, because when he entered the pulpit on January 1st, uh, 1519, he announced that he was going to start with uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and he was going to uh, preach through the New Testament. And while you and I would go, well, we do the same thing. We just don't do it Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now, that'd be a little bit tough, you know, then Acts. And, you know, uh, we, we jump around a bit, but that's, that's certainly what we do too. Yeah, but it was almost unheard of uh, at that point in time. And one of the people who heard that first sermon uh, wrote in his journal that he felt like he had been grabbed by the hair of his head and yanked up into heaven. Uh, so rare was it to um, have a Bible-based uh, exhortation from Scripture. I mean, what they were, what you know, preaching had fallen on. Uh, you know, we we know that, that during the medieval period, uh, preaching had fallen on tough times, and uh, many of the the uh, priests were were almost illiterate themselves, and so uh, he brought. Uh, a lot of changes to the Grossmünster, you know. But, as we also mentioned last time, um, there was this group that he met with um, that uh, he began studying the Greek New Testament with. Um, this happens right after... Um, I don't remember men- mentioning... I, Okay, I did mention this briefly, but I didn't mention I didn't give you the whole background. I'm sorry about that. I, I mentioned briefly that uh, in in 1522, when he marries uh, Anna Reinhardt, um, at the same time uh, there was a I think it was his printer um, who broke the Lenten fast uh, by eating sausages, and uh, he invited. Zwingli to partake in the feast. Zwingli didn't, but when word got out, he defended the breaking of the Lenten rules and the eating of sausages. Uh, and this sort of signaled uh, the break uh, with uh, with Rome was this uh, was eating sausages, which is um, you know if you want to remember sort of what got things going uh, in uh, in, uh, in in Zurich. Eating sausages. Uh, there you go. And so that's when he uh, he uh, writes freedom of choice in eating and opposing fasting. At the same, yes, sir. When he said he was preaching through the New Testament, is that in the vernacular, or, or is he still doing Latin at this point? Uh, no, he'd be preaching. He'd be preaching so the people would, would would understand. Yeah, I mean, he'd be translating from the Vulgate or the Greek or whatever. But he was the people's priest, so they would have certainly understood what he was uh, what he was preaching. But he's, he begins meeting with this group of people. I mentioned their names to you last time. Uh, Conrad Grebel, Felix Mans, Wilhelm Reublin, Johannes Brotli, Simon Stumpf. These are all um, the major names uh, in what is going to be called the Radical Reformation or the Anabaptist movement uh, that is going to have its origination there. That doesn't mean they were the only people who held 
Anabaptist views. Remember when we talked about Luther, we talk, talked about the Zwickau prophets, how they had come in while Luther was at the castle church in Wartburg. And, um, uh, but what's interesting, what's interesting is during the same time period, Zwingli does play with the idea of um, adult or at least uh, you know, with credo-baptism, the idea that a person has to make a profession of faith to be baptized. He, he, it, it's very plain from his encounters with the Anabaptists that uh, they had discussed that and that the Anabaptists like, hey, you agreed with us just a few weeks ago. And we talked about the political aspects. It's also during this very same time uh, that Zwingli is seriously giving consideration to the nature of the Lord's Supper. And normally when we think about Zwingli today, and when you think about it, Zwingli is not that well known. For some of you, this class may be the most you've ever heard about Ulrich Zwingli. Um, but why is that? Why is it that we knew so much more about Luther than Zwingli, especially as Reformed people? Well, you think about when you think about that, the answer is fairly clear. A, um, Luther, how long does Luther have? Well, let's say he's really starting to write in about 1519. He dies in 1546. Fair amount of time. Um, who eclipses Zwingli in our thinking? Calvin does. And Calvin is not even converted when Zwingli dies. And Calvin has, from the mid-1530s until 1564, he's got a good three, uh, three decades as well, just as, as Luther did. Um, Zwingli, let's say he's converted, let's, let's put it at 1519, he's got 12 years. He dies 1531. And so he has significantly less time, significantly less writings uh, to, um, to follow after him. And he is eclipsed um, by, uh, by Calvin and uh, not so much by his successor, Heinrich Bullinger, though Bullinger is quite well known uh, as well and uh, had, had great impact. In fact, I, I heard someone say this morning that uh, in, in those days, Bullinger wrote more letters than Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli combined. Uh, he was sort of the Twitter of the ancient world. If you, if, you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to know what was going on in Europe uh, in the Reformation, you wrote to Bullinger. He, uh, he, he knew what everybody was doing. Um, interesting, interesting fellow along those lines. But anyway... Uh, there, is, there is Lutheranism, there's Calvinism, there is no Zwingliism. Uh, there is no, uh, you know, because that is really taken up into, um, into Calvinism, except the issue of the Lord's Supper. And there's all sorts of dispute and discussion as to exactly what um, Zwingli's um, doctrine of the Supper was, Zwinglian uh, historians want to say that it was more than mere memorialism, um, a mere remembrance, because um, uh, Bollinger uh, and Calvin 
are able to get together on a, a, and say they agree. And, and Calvin said he could agree with Zwingli. But Calvin obviously has more than just a memorialist view of the supper. And so we have a lot of secondhand stuff. We have letters. We have this, that, and the other thing. But you know, we don't have just full-length treatises and things like that, especially from the Zwinglian side, to be able to uh, know exactly how he would have responded or if he had survived the Battle of Kappel in 1531. Um, you know, if he had lived another 10 years or something like that, would, would we have more information? Well, I think obviously we would have. Um, but um, that particular issue ends up really being more historically associated with the Anabaptist movement, which absorbs a uh, very anti-sacramental, anti-clerical perspective um, and would hence be identified as a Zwinglian um, view of the Lord's Supper, which, of course, leads to uh, the dispute uh, in 1529 at Marburg and, you know, hocus corpus meum and uh, this is my body and uh, uh, writing on the table and all the rest of that stuff that we talked about when we talked about uh, Marburg um, uh, earlier. And uh, so uh, one of the things that's interesting about that is in Luther's mind, you know, we talked about, you know, when, when word of Zwingli's death comes to Luther, his only response is, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword, and he just goes on. Shows zero compassion uh, for, for Zwingli. And, and at the end of the Marburg Colloquy in 1529, remember what was said. Zwingli is of a different spirit. He is of a different spirit. He's not a Christian. And uh, it has been said, I'm not sure if we can absolutely prove it, but it has been said that, that Luther said he would rather drink blood with the Papists than grape juice with the Zwinglians. Um, so he was very, very adamant on this, this subject. We wonder about what all the reasons for that are. Uh, and one of the reasons might be that the, that Karlstadt, remember, remember sort of crazy Karlstadt who went <whistles> off into the uh, ozone a little bit. Uh, running around Wittenberg, smashing uh, statues and uh, wearing regular person's clothes and offering the, the cup to the laity and, you know, the, doing all the, the stuff as fast as he possibly could, who ends up being cast out by, by Luther. Karlstadt had developed a strictly memorialist or symbolic understanding of the Lord's Supper. And so... It's probable that in Luther's mind, once you go down that road, you're no better than Zwickau prophets. You're no better than, than uh, all these uh, Anabaptists. And so if that's the case, then you can see hawk s corpus ma'am, hawk s corpus ma'am. You know, pounding on the table in, in Marburg uh, for Luther is holding the line against the radicals and against a movement um, that, as far as he could tell, was going to result in uh, anarchy within, with, within all of society. And so it wasn't 
as simple. Uh, there were a lot of things. There were political things. There were lots of political things, as well as theological things going on in uh, Luther's response to, uh, to Zwingli uh, at that particular uh, point in, uh, in time. And so it's at the same time that you have the split with the early Anabaptists over baptism that you have the, his development in his thought of the Lord's Supper uh, as uh, symbolic, um, as, as his, his way of dealing with the concept of transubstantiation uh, was not to do consubstantiation or the ubiquity of the body of Christ. And really, the, you know, Calvin's view is going to come along into maturity at a later point in time. Um, so that really wasn't an option on the table at that particular point in, in time. We, we don't know how Zwingli would have responded to that. Bollinger responded to it positively. So you can take that for, for what you will at that point in time. And uh, so uh, that time period is a fruitful time of development and biblical study and challenge on Zwingli's part, always within the context of that Swiss democratic idea. Uh, Things have to be done decently and in order, and that's where he has the break with people like Grable and Mons, because they're like, Okay, look, if we've come to the conclusion infant baptism is not in the New Testament, then we are being hypocritical if we continue practicing it. So, you know, and so as we mentioned last time, they have the disputation before the council. Uh, The council goes with Zwingli. Um, And so uh, by 1526, we mentioned last week that Zwingli convinces the council uh, to issue an edict authorizing execution of convicted Anabaptists. So again, when you have the Marburg Colloquy in 1529, both Luther, both the Lutheran Protestant movement and the Reformed out of Switzerland, there isn't one in Geneva yet, um, both branches while getting together to try to find some means of self-preservation, because remember, Philip of Hesse, he wants to get these two branches together so you can sort of create an axis and you get the princes together and you've got some military power to protect yourself against the Holy Roman Empire, um, which they eventually did very shortly after that, what was called the Schmalkald League, even though that was crushed right after Luther's death. Uh, that's how, that's how um, Charles could stand in the church in Wittenberg and look at Luther's tomb uh, shortly after his death because Charles just swept in and crushed that league and invaded uh, Germany all the way into into Wittenberg, though he wasn't able to stay there. Anyway, um, Philip of Hesse wants to get this, this these these guys together, but in those days, you had to have theological agreement to get together. It was a completely different world. It was still very much a sacral world. You, you just couldn't have um, agreement um, between people who held almost any differences in theology. And to think about it, because remember, at Marburg, 14, basically 14 and a half out of 15 points of theology, we agreed. 
Not enough to have, not enough to put together a confederation. You just, you just can't have that kind of difference. Um, very, very different world than, very, very different way of thinking than, uh, than you and I are accustomed to. So, uh, the irony to me is that you have uh, Luther and Zwingli and Bootser and Olcom and Patias and Melanchthon and Hess all getting together, um, and they view themselves as an endangered species, that there is a pressure placed upon them uh, to, to agree together uh, against the great power of the Holy Roman Empire. And yet, at the same time, both have already agreed within their provinces to use their power uh, to suppress the Anabaptists. And they don't see a contrast there. They don't see a contradiction there. And they, they primarily do not see a contradiction there because they viewed the radicals as revolutionaries and as individuals who were opposed to the most fundamental agreed upon necessary truths of civilization itself. And one of those was, we all have to have the same religion. We all have to have the same religion. And they were saying, no, uh, we don't. There needs to be freedom. There need, you need to grant freedom for disagreement and diversity of view. Um, and no. Now, remember, uh, Marburg's 1529, the... And we'll get to this soon. Um, I don't know if anybody saw the uh, tweet in the Facebook thing I, I did last night, but um, I was doing some reading also in this area. I do try to prepare for class. Um, and I was reading on the classic example um, that led to the detestation of the Anabaptists for centuries in Europe. And uh, that was the Munster Rebellion. And uh, uh, I, uh, I Google-earthed the, uh, the church. I, I was sitting there. Well, we'll talk about this later, but make a really long story short. I remember back in the 1980s, my seminary professor telling us about, at the end of that rebellion, they, they took the three leaders, the Anabaptist leaders, um, killed them and put their bodies in cages and hung their, the cages from the uh, from the spire of the church. Have you seen it oh, yeah. in Munster? Is it still there? Still there. Okay. I, yeah, I figured because um, now, of course, the bodies aren't. The bodies are there about fifty years, and then they they did remove those, but they've left the cages there. And my understanding is they once took them down because the rust was getting to them, and so they just had to clean them up and then put them back up. And then that church was damaged in World War II and the bomb. And when they repaired the steeple, they repaired the cages and put them back up. This is, this is hundreds of years later. And so uh, I was sitting there thinking to myself, oh, man, it's, it's, it's 2018. Surely. And so I went on Google Earth last night and uh, zoomed into Munster and found the church. And I'm going around and whoop, there they are. You know, on, on Google Earth, uh, you, can, you can see him. I posted a screenshot uh, on Facebook last night if you want to see it. It was, uh, it was fascinating. It's still there. Huge impact on the entire psyche of Europe, but especially the Germans. Um, Anabaptism, there. That's what happens if you're an Anabaptist. 
right up there. See up there? Those cages? That's where you end up. So it was, uh, it was a, and, and yes, sir? A woman said exactly that when I was there with these preachers and these church guys passing tracts underneath it. Uh-huh. She says to the rest of the Baptist, she goes, you see up there? That's where we used to put you. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It, it, it's still there the, uh, in the psyche. It is. It is very much, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to look because uh, I'll, I'm going to be visiting Munster in January on my way back from Russia, and uh, uh, assuming I get out of Russia, that is. Uh, but uh, um, if they win the World Cup, no problem. Uh, they're not going to win the World. I don't even think they're in the World Cup. No, they're not. They're just hosting it. Oh, Russia's playing today. Yeah, I think they're part of Spain. Yeah. Really? I didn't. I didn't. I didn't even know they were. I, I had not seen anything about them. So anyway. Um, uh, yeah, well, uh, they're not going to win. Uh, sorry. Uh, right now, right now, the French are looking pretty good, uh, to be honest. That's a whole other story that the vast majority of people in this room are going, you watch that stuff? Yes, and it's not called soccer. It's called football. Uh, but anyways, that's a whole... Uh, at, you can tell the difference between Americans who don't travel overseas and Americans who do uh, by, by their, their view of that particular, that particular sport. Um, if you want to live... Uh, overseas, you have to be careful about how you uh, you speak of such things and uh, need to be. Uh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yes, it's quite quite true, quite true. Anyway, so uh, the the point being that the the visceral detestation of an anarchy in religion is hard for us to understand because we live in it. We live in anarchy and religion. Um, and some would argue, and that's why religion as a whole has so little meaningful impact in Western culture. Today. Well, religion, as far as former religions, I would say religion as far as, as secularism uh, obviously is a religion, but be that as it may. Um, and if in Luther's mind there was a connection between Zwingli and the Anabaptist because of his view of the supper, that helps to explain uh, explain many uh, many of those uh, those things. Now, war broke out within the Swiss. Yes. Can you just explain real quick what the Munster Rebellion was? We'll get to it. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna deal with uh, with the Anabaptists uh, the next time we get together, and uh, we'll we'll. It's a fascinating story. Uh, it is undoubtedly one of the most fascinating stories in church history. Um, and it does illustrate to the nth degree the fact that the term Anabaptist has almost no meaning because if you can, if you can put together uh, Jan of Leiden uh, with Menno Simons and say they're all the same thing, that's like using the term human. <laughs> There's a lot that goes underneath that. How, how useful is that type of descriptive term? And so it really does illustrate when we use the term Anabaptist that we're using something that's so broad it doesn't communicate much. But yeah, we'll look at it. Um, it was um, it was fascinating. We'll uh, we'll get to it when I get back from uh, from Utah and Colorado uh, at the end of end of July. So uh, obviously, there's lots of things you can look up on these things if you want to you know be ahead of the curve if you want to do that. Otherwise, just Hang on, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to it. We're almost done, because once we do the Anabaptists, we are done.
uh, we're actually going to get back to studying Bible during Bible study. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a concept, right? Anyway, um, Lu- uh, Zwingli's death. Uh, Zwingli, what, one of the other reasons that Zwingli was a controversial figure that I didn't mention to you, and I apologize for this, he, even before he came to Zurich, was a strong voice condemning Swiss mercenary activity. The Swiss, this is one of their primary means of income. Uh, They were well known as great fighters. And uh, for a long time, they were a dominant fighting force because they're used to the pike, the big long type thing. Then they started getting slaughtered because uh, other people came up with something called a gun, (laughs) which has a much longer range than a pike. Uh, And uh, so... Uh, Zwingli had actually gone with Swiss mercenary forces as a younger man, as a, as a chaplain, and had, had seen tens of thousands of them wiped out. And uh, seeing the, the youth of Switzerland wiped out in this way, he began preaching strongly against the mercenary trade, which was really the stock and trade of, of, of Switzerland. And so that was another thing that had... Uh, made it very interesting that he had been chosen as the Leutpriester there in, uh, in Zurich. But, uh, so people find it um, somewhat contradictory uh, as to how Zwingli uh, died. He was a, a chaplain in the military. He was a combatant. Um, it is, we don't, can't prove this, but in, in all probability, he probably took human life on the battlefield himself. And people find it to be strange. Well, on the one hand, you're well known for preaching against mercenaryism, and on the other hand, you're out there swinging a sword at other human beings. How do you put those two things together? And obviously, it goes back to Augustine's just war theory and and all the things related to that. Um, But uh, in this case, this was a war that broke out between the cantons in the Swiss, Reforma- Swiss, Swiss Confederation. So it was between the Roman Catholic cantons and the uh, Protestant cantons. And so in this case, Zurich was defending itself against invasion from uh, Roman Catholic uh, invaders. And so he would have considered this an appropriate use of force, the defense of your home and your family against invading Forces. It wasn't a mercenary thing. He hadn't gone with mercenary forces someplace else, uh, that type of thing. And so there were battles in 1529 and then in 1531. And in 1531, um, the Zurichers are are overwhelmed. Um, Zwingli is dealt a mortal wound. Uh, There were certain wounds that you could survive for quite some time, but you weren't going to survive Uh, and the sense of living. And uh, according to Bullinger, um, Zwingli was uh, found under a pile of wounded and dead uh, by the Roman Catholics. And they uh, asked him if he needed a priest to make confession. Uh, He shook his head and just continued staring up into uh, the heavens. Uh, they asked if he wished to uh, make any prayer to Mary or the saints, and he shook his head. By the way, just in passing, 
it is fascinating. Uh, Zwingli had a pretty strongly developed Mariology, and uh, evidence is strong that uh, through his entire life, even having embraced Sola Scriptura and everything else, uh, that he continued to believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, uh, which, is, uh, which is interesting, uh, which probably comes from his, his youth where he was raised. Um, there was a, a black Madonna in one of the places where he, and he pre- preached against that, but the high view of Mary was probably part of his background. But anyway, uh, he shakes his head and, and says no, and they, they start getting frustrated because now they realize this guy's not Roman Catholic. He's, he's, one of the, he's one of the heretics. And so a captain comes along, and when he's told about it, he just goes over and, and uh, stabs Zwingli through the heart with his sword and uh, ends, his, uh, ends his suffering. Now, other uh, traditions state that once it was recognized who he was, then they uh, did horrible and terrible things to his body and sent pieces there, here, there, and everywhere as a, as a um, uh, remembrance of this. And uh, the tree under which he was killed, uh, now in Zurich, they're called Zwinglibaum. Uh, those are, they, his name became attached uh, to that particular kind of, uh, of tree. You can go and see um, these areas in uh, Zurich today, <laughs> if you've got the money. Um, as I mentioned to you, Zurich is an incredibly expensive place uh, to go. Uh, everything there is uh, minimally twice as expensive as here, uh, frequently three times as expensive as here, uh, because of the amount of money uh, that exists uh, there in, uh, in Zurich today. Uh, but, obviously, uh, the... Uh, the Grossmünster is uh, still there. Uh, you can uh, uh, right, right just down the road, very short walk. Uh, you come to the, I, I mean, the Grossmünster is right on the, the, the river. It's just, well, okay, 20 yards up, something like that. Um, you walk down to the river's edge. There is a bridge right there crossing the river, and uh, there is a plaque on the bridge, because this is where once in 1526, uh, the council agreed to the utilization of the execution penalty for recalcitrant, uh, resistant Anabaptists, uh, the Anabaptists would be taken to that bridge and given their third baptism. Uh, so their first was as an infant, their second was as an adult, and their third was to be drowned in the river uh, off of that uh, bridge. They'd be tied to a, a chair or something along those lines and, uh, and put in there until they... They'd pull them up every once in a while to see if they were dead, um, uh, but eventually they'd bubble and that would be the end of that. Um, and so I stood there and uh, stood right on that bridge and uh, thought about all the things that led to that kind of a situation. And again, if you've seen uh, the radicals, you, it is a well-done scene in the video of the Radicals when Michael Sattler, who was imprisoned in Zurich briefly, um, has that encounter with Zwingli in his, in his cell. Uh, because Sattler was, he had been a prior of a monastery, he was very well trained, he knew biblical languages and things like that. Uh, he was a man of culture, as was Zwingli. And so it is very interesting to watch that brief encounter. And to be honest with you, um, the guy that they, the actor they got to play Zwingli in The Radicals, 
um, looks eerily like every painting I've ever seen of Zwingli. I mean, it was almost like, whoa, <laughs> is that one of those Mission Impossible mask type things, you know, where uh, all of a sudden uh, you, you, you look just like, like somebody else? Or, uh, it, was, it was pretty weird. And it was, a, it was a very, very interesting encounter. So if you haven't seen the radicals yet, um, put it on your list before we get together next time because we will talk about uh, the Anabaptist movement and, and primarily through the utilization of the terms that were used of them uh, the next time we get together because the last subject we address, at least in the course that I've taught in the past, is Calvin. Um, and Calvin is, these issues have already been dealt with. I mean, the Munster things, 1535, 1534, 1535, that's right around the very same time as Calvin's uh, conversion. And so, uh, well, Calvin's a little bit earlier than that, but the, the Institutes are first published in 1535. So he's a second-generation reformer. Uh, the Anabaptists have already been being dealt with by that particular point in time. And so if you haven't seen uh, The Radicals, it's available for free on YouTube. Um, I saw it when it first came out in the theaters back in the 90s. I think it was like, like 1990, something like that. Yeah, 19, yeah 1990. I just graduated from, uh, from seminary. And uh, so it's, uh, it's available if you haven't, uh, haven't seen it yet. Okay? All right, let's close the word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for... Uh, your servants of old, uh, recognition that you have always worked with uh, imperfect people. And we do thank you for their example, especially in their love for your word and their seeking to uh, apply it in their lives. We ask that we would do the same thing, that you be with us now as we go into worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.